The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I you, if you would, to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. your Bibles open there. In a a bit, we will come to Luke chapter 5, and we'll pick up in verse 27. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, you don't need to go there. I'll have it on the screen for you. We have a familiar passage from the Christmas story. It's simply a message from an angel. And the angel says this, She, being Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. It's a familiar passage from the Christmas story, a familiar message from an angel. But in that message, there are two names that are given that refer to the baby who's born on Christmas Day. She'll call his name Jesus, for he'll save his people from their sins. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, for he'll save his people from their sins. One title speaks to the baby's identity. The other title speaks to his mission. One title speaks to who he is. The other speaks to what he came to do. Emmanuel, God with us. This baby who was born was God who's come to be with us. Let me take you back to Ezekiel chapter 34. A prophecy in the Old Testament you may not be familiar with. Or perhaps you are. It's a lengthy prophecy beginning in verse 1 of Ezekiel chapter 34. You don't have to turn there. I'll read the whole thing out to you and the end part I'll have on the screen. Ezekiel was a prophet in the Old Testament, and he had come at about a time when the nation of Israel was being swept away into captivity to the Babylonians. And there were reasons why this captivity was taking place. It was part of God's judgment on His people. But it was part of God's judgment primarily on the leaders of His people. And this is the subject to which God speaks through the mouth of Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 34. It's an indictment against the the leaders, particularly the spiritual leaders in Israel. Listen to what God says to them during that time. Ezekiel writes, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. 
prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you've not strengthened, the sick you've not healed, the injured you've not bound up, the strayed you've not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you've ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth. And there were none to search or seek for them. Let's just pause right there. So, God is delivering a message to the leaders who are primarily in the zone of spiritual leaders, although they were also government officials. And he's castigating them for their lack of leadership over his people. I mean, if this is a, 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 a report card for school, I mean, they get a solid flat F, F minus, right? Everything that shepherds were supposed to do for their sheep, they were doing none of it. And God's furious. The result is his sheep are scattered. The result is his sheep are lost. The result is his sheep are wounded and there's nobody to go after them. The ones who were supposed to be doing it were doing what? Did you hear what he said? You don't feed the sheep. You're feeding yourselves. Pick up in verse 7. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become prey... And my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd. And because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep, therefore you shepherds hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds. And I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall they shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. So, so far it's a pretty blazing rebuke against the leaders of His people, right? I mean, God is ticked off. He is really ticked off with the leadership of His people. And He says in very vivid terms, no more is this going to be the case. No more are my sheep going to be in this condition. I'm against you. And let me just tell you, anytime you're thinking through Scripture and there's somebody on the other side of the phrase, I am against you, and it's God speaking, that's a really bad place to be. You don't want to be on the opposite side of a God who's against you. But these shepherds were because they had utterly failed at what God had called them to do. But then in verse 11... It's a remarkable prophecy. He says this, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. 
as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all the places they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out of the out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and on all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they, sh- pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and strong I'll destroy. I'll feed them in justice. God gets to the point with His people and particularly with those who are responsible for leading his people, who've done such a poor job at what he had called them to do, that God says, okay, you won't do what I've called you to do. I'll do it myself. You won't feed my sheep. I'll feed my sheep. You won't go after the ones who are strayed. I will go after them. You won't seek my sheep who've wandered off and are lost. I'll do it myself. When we look to the birth of Jesus in the Christmas story, we cannot mistake that the baby lying in a manger is God Himself. And He is God Himself coming to do what He promised in Ezekiel chapter 34. Because He steps into a world in the time when the religious leaders are in exactly the same condition that they were in in Ezekiel's day getting fat off of the sheep and doing absolutely nothing that He had called them to do. And so God says, I'll come and I'll do it myself. And on the first Christmas, Jesus is born. And He's called Emmanuel, God with us. He's God. He's God who's come to do what He promised He would do. To go out and to search after His sheep that have strayed and to find them and bring them back. To go after the ones who are lost and in danger and to bring them back into fold. To find the ones that are wounded and hurting and to bind up their wounds. To to search after His sheep who are sick and weak and to strengthen them. The birth of Jesus represents God's fulfillment, at least in part, to the prophecy of Ezekiel chapter 34. We've spent the last two weeks out of Hebrews chapter 2 talking about the fact that the baby born in the manger was Jesus who was fully human. That in every way we are human, He was human. And it had to be that way in order for Him to do what He came to do. But we cannot miss that the baby who was fully human was at one and the same time, miraculously, 100% also fully God. He was indeed God Himself who's come. He was the God who back in Ezekiel chapter 34 said, You haven't done what I've called you to do, so I will come. And when the baby is born in the manger, it's God who came. And He came with a mission. 
He gave us hints of it in Ezekiel chapter 34. His mission was to seek the lost, to bring back the strayed, to bind up those who were injured, to strengthen the weak. All the things his shepherds were supposed to be doing but were not, he came to do himself. In Hebrews chapter 1, you may remember from a few weeks back, we talked an awful lot about how that little letter began. It began with a really a glorious declaration of the deity of Christ. You remember? He was the, the, the radiance of God. He was the exact imprint of the Father's nature. And we talked at length about how Christ was God in human flesh, that He was fully God, that He was God of all gods, that everything that makes God God, Christ was. He created all things. In Him, all things hold together. He is God. Fully God. Instead of rehashing what we talked about in Hebrews chapter 1, I want to focus on the reality of why God came. What was His mission? Hinted at in Ezekiel chapter 34. And then we see it vividly on display in His ministry. And we'll look at one example of that in it. Luke chapter 5 in just a moment. He is Emmanuel. He is the God from Ezekiel 34 who said He would come, who has now come. And He is at the same time Jesus, which speaks to His mission. He is the God who came in order to save His people. He came to save people. The name Jesus comes from Yeshua, Joshua. It means God will save. Throughout the, the New Testament, the, the, the Bible repeats often the reality of why Christ came, that He came to save lost people. He came to save people from their sins. Luke chapter 2, verse 11 says that He would be born a Savior, someone who came to save. And Mark chapter 10, verse 45 tells us the Son of Man is come to save. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus said these very words, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And the implication behind all of these things is that there was a problem that men, and by men I mean all of us, ladies included, are sinners and are in grave danger and in need of someone to save us. What's implied here is that we're all sinners and that sin sin itself is sort of a, a damning reality from which every single one of us needs to be saved and delivered or rescued. And Jesus is God who came to do that very thing. He came to save us from sin. He came to save us from its ultimate consequences. And He also came to save us from its present domination. Sin has two effects in our life. It damns us eternally and it dominates us presently. That's what sin does to human beings. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, For the wages of sin is what? It's death. It's death. It's the eternal consequence of sin. It's death, eternal death, separation from God. Romans chapter 6, a little earlier in verse 17 and 18 says this, Paul writes, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So in the same chapter, Paul speaks to the Roman church and he talks to them about both ways sin affects us. That it damns us eternally. That's the wages of our sin. But he also says that that, that sin has has the effect of enslaving us at the moment. 
enslaving us to do as it drives us. And that Christ came to save us both from the eternal consequences, but also to free us from the present domination that sin has over us. But we can't miss the reality that God came to do those things for sinners. It was to sinners that Christ was born. It was to sinners that God came to save. He didn't come and do everything He did for perfect people. He came for sinners. His ministry targeted sinners. He poured out His grace and His mercy on sinners. He loved and forgave sinners. He offered the gospel to sinners. He gave His life for sinners. He established a church for sinners. That's what He came to do. Christ came. God came to save sinners. And here's a revolutionary thought for some people these days. The church that represents God on the earth also exists for the benefit of sinners. The church exists and was established that it may be a launching point for believers to go out into the world and find sinners. To, to be a haven of people who did and do what the shepherds of Israel were supposed to have done back in Ezekiel's day and in the day in which Jesus was born. That is to go out and to pursue the lost and to bring them back. To go out and pursue those who strayed and to call them back. To go out and find those who are hurting and to bind them up. To go out and find those who are weak and to strengthen them. The message of the church at Christmas time is a message for sinners. That God has come. And He's come to save. The gospel, that phrase is being sort of bandied about these days in theological circles. It seems to be in vogue to sort of take any sort of pet theology and define it underneath the title, the gospel. And it's kind of a foolish way of going about arguing your own theological points because really it just all it does is dilute what the gospel really means the gospel is the good news that god has come to save sinners through the death of jesus on the cross that is the gospel and it is a message for sinners for people who are far from him another way of saying it is the gospel is not for good people, it's for bad people who know that they're bad and who come to God for forgiveness and cleansing. One of the great challenges of being Christians in the modern day and being a part of the Christian church in the modern day is that we have a natural magnetism inward. inward. That is, the longer we walk with Christ, the more we tend to isolate ourselves from sinners. And I think you find that sort of a magnetism. I don't know why it occurs, but it does occur. And I bet if you look over your own life, you'll find that the longer you've been a sinner, probably, unless you've done intentional things to mitigate it, there's been a natural pull inward and a natural pull to spend most of your time and efforts and energy around other people who are like you, church people, Christian people, and less and less among sinners. 
There's often a problem within the church culture as well that the longer a church is in existence, the more inward it becomes, the more concerned it becomes about the needs and the concerns and the wants and the preferences and the desires of those who are on the inside, and it becomes less and less and less concerned about the lost and the straying and the hurting and the broken who need someone to go after them. But Jesus came, God came in human flesh to go chase after sinners, to bring good news to sinners, to find sinners and say to them, you know, there's good news. I've come. And I've come that you might have life and that you might have it eternally. I've come that no matter how bad your sin is, it can be forgiven and cleansed and washed away. I've come that no matter how hurt and broken you are, that you can be healed and you can be cleansed and you can be brought into my family. The message of Christmas is a message to sinners. And the testimony of the life of Jesus, the one who came, God in human flesh, is story after story of Him doing that very thing. And I direct your attention this morning to Matthew chapter 5. So we see one vivid illustration of Jesus modeling this for us. And there are many other examples. But I want to just look at this one today. It's the conversion of a man named Matthew. He wrote the Gospel of Matthew, the first of the Gospels. We're told about how he came to know Jesus in Luke chapter 5. Listen to what Luke records. After this, he, that's Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi, which is another name for Matthew, sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Well, Matthew lived in a time that was different than ours. There was a political uh, setting that was a little different than ours. The time of Christ, Israel was under Roman domination. The Romans ruled. They allowed the Israelites sort of to do their own thing within certain bounds underneath their rule. But one of the things that they had to do was pay taxes. And just like people today, uh, people in Matthew's day and in Jesus' day uh, found great joy in paying taxes to their government. They celebrated every opportunity that they had to empty their pockets and put their money in the coffers of the centralized government, right? They, they had such wonderful confidence in their leaders that they knew that every penny of their hard-earned money that they gave was going to be well spent for the benefit of all those who were the wonderful benefactors of their rule, right? It's just like that today, right? Well, you understand the sarcasm there. No, people hated paying taxes then just like they hate paying taxes now. There were a couple of kinds of taxes. There's a, a poll tax, or excuse me, a toll tax, which is an income tax, and a ground tax, which is a land tax. And there were dozens of other kinds of duties that people had to pay. 
And the people to whom you paid them were publicans and tax collectors. Publicans were rich Roman senators and others who had basically purchased the rights to collect taxes in a particular geographic area. And they purchased the rights at public auction. And the reason you would want to do such a thing is you would purchase a franchise, if you will, a tax franchise for a region, was because you had the right to then go and collect taxes in that region. And whatever it was that the Roman government wanted, you could collect as much as you could collect above that, and you got to keep the excess. And so it was a lucrative sort of an investment. The publicans then hired tax collectors who were sort of locals that were the ones who actually were the -the on-the-ground men who went face-to-face with people and, and banged out of them the tax monies. And the tax collectors had the same arrangement with the publicans that the publicans had with the Romans. And that was, here's what I need you to collect. If you collect more, it's yours. And so they were cheats and swindlers who would do whatever it took to shake people down and get extra taxes to pad their own back pockets. And so they were hated by everybody. They were socially, they were outcasts. They were categorized with sinners and prostitutes and Gentiles and anyone else. They were seen as dishonest swindlers, the lowest of the low, the bottom of the rung, the most hated among the hated. And the Bible tells us that this is the kind of man that Matthew was. He was one of those folks. He was a tax collector. And we're introduced to him here. Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. By the way, you can look it up in Matthew's Gospel. He identifies himself as being the Levi of this story. Sitting in a tax booth and he said, follow me. And he left everything and rose and followed him. You know, other than what we have in this passage and its parallels, we don't really know very much about Matthew. We actually know very little about the man. I suspect that that's probably intentional on the part of God because everything that we need to know about Him, everything that needs to be remembered about Him is remembered right here in the text. In Acts chapter 1, verse 13, we do have a reference to Matthew in the list of disciples, but after that we don't know anything else about him. Church tradition tells us that he preached the gospel for about eight years throughout Judea. He traveled to Persia and to uh, Parthia and then over to Ethiopia where he died as a martyr somewhere around 62 A.D. That's what church tradition tells us. Maybe that's what happened. What we do know about him are two things. The two things are the only things we need to know. The first is this. He met Jesus and it changed his life. It's really that simple. He met Jesus and it changed his life. Jesus comes by and he speaks to Matthew. Matthew was doing what? He's sitting at his tax collector booth, watching the people go by, doing what tax collectors do, collecting taxes. And Jesus comes by and he speaks to this man. Now, it was a radical thing for a Jewish rabbi to speak to a tax collector because Jewish rabbis didn't do such things. You didn't associate with people like Matthew. But Jesus was not your average rabbi. What's interesting is the text tells us that Jesus said to him, follow me. We don't know if there was other dialogue that they, that they shared between one another. But we know at least that he said to Matthew, follow me. And whatever else happened in their exchange, it was real enough and it was significant enough for Matthew to step up from his booth, to drop everything that was a part of his life, and to walk away and follow Jesus. I mean, he left everything. He left his job. He left 
the wealth that he was making off of other people. And he knew that once he left, he'd be never able to return to that job again. I mean, it was a, it was a complete break with everything that he was before. And it really sort of is an indictment, it's, uh, you know, sort of as a sidebar to, to the rest of us, isn't it? Because it's just so clear and simple. When he comes, Jesus says, follow me. And Matthew says, all right, whatever it is that he saw in Jesus, we don't know for sure. But he saw enough in Jesus to know that whatever Jesus is and whoever Jesus is, he's worth leaving everything to follow. I think so much of our lives are spent negotiating with, with Jesus on the things that we'd like to keep. But not Matthew. He says, I'll drop everything and I'll follow you. He looked at Jesus. He looked at his life. It's no contest. I'm dropping this stuff and I'm going after him. Jesus is God in human flesh who came to save sinners. But he comes to save sinners who understand that they're sinners and need to be saved. And Matthew was such a sinner. Matthew knew who he was. He had a very clear picture of his own character and a very clear picture of his track record in life. And Jesus walks up to him and says to him, You follow me. And Matthew says, I'll take that trade. And he follows Jesus. One author said this, He lost his career, but he gained a destiny. He lost his material possessions, but he gained a spiritual fortune. He lost his earthly security, but he gained eternal life. He makes no demands of Jesus. He negotiates nothing with Jesus. He just drops everything and he follows. And then verse 29 tells us that he immediately began to lead others to Jesus. The two things we know about Matthew... He met Jesus and it changed his life. And as soon as he followed Jesus, he immediately began to lead others. Verse 29, And Levi made him a great feast. That's Jesus at his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. I mean, not only does Matthew drop everything to follow Jesus, but he immediately goes home and he puts together a dinner party. And he invites Jesus to his home for the dinner party. I mean, there was, there was no evangelism training course. Right? There was no go, go hang out with church people for about 10 years until you understand all the answers to all the questions and you have all the strategies built up and then maybe you can go test the waters and find one sinner out there that you might ask to come to church. No. Matthew knows he encountered Jesus. It changed his life. He goes home and he sets up a dinner party and he invites his friends, and his relatives. He didn't need to be reminded that the gospel is for lost people because he was just formerly one of them. So who does he invite? Well, if you're a tax collector, who do you invite to your party at your house? You, know, you invite other tax collectors, right, Mickey? I mean, who else are you going to invite? Nobody else hung around tax collectors. They were the scum. Nobody wanted to hang around with him, so it was just other people like him. It was just other vile sinners that he hung around with, probably other tax collectors that he would sit around. I'd imagine what the dinner table conversation was like that night. What do, what do, what do they talk about when you get a, a, a room full of tax collectors and swindlers and people like them around the table? What do you think they talk about? 
I'd love to have been at that table to hear what they were talking about. So intrigued. And there's such Jesus in the midst. Well, the purpose that Matthew had in planning the party was he wanted his friends to know what he just found out. That God had come to save sinners like him and like them. So he invites everybody. people he knows, the sinners like him. He knew what it meant to be lost. He now knew what it meant to be saved. It was fresh on his mind. And I think one of the challenges that you and I have as believers, particularly if you've been a Christian for a long time, is we forget what it was like to be lost. We forget what it was like to be without Christ. We forget what it was like to be in our sin. And what a horrible, treacherous, dangerous, awful place that is to be in life. The further we get from that, the foggier it becomes in our mind. We complicate our evangelism too. It wasn't complicated for Matthew. He didn't feel like he needed a special gift. He didn't feel like he needed some special training. He just knew he'd had a real encounter with Christ and he wanted other people to have it. So he gathered up the people that he knew and introduced them to Jesus. And he figured Jesus would sort out the rest. We're not told what happened at the dinner party. I'd like to know. Inquiring minds want to know. Right? How many of those other tax collectors had the same experience that Matthew did? I suspect there had to have been some. Maybe all. Who knows? I want to know when I get to heaven. I want to find him. Matthew, tell me what happened at the dinner party. It won't be the first thing on my list, but it's on there. Jesus is the God who came to save sinners like Matthew and his friends. It's no surprise, though, that when he does this, he, he, he gets a reaction from the religious crowd, right? There is a religious crowd in Jesus' day. And they're very pious, and they're very religious, and they're very moral outwardly, right? And they go through all of the re- religious ceremonies, and they do all of the religious externals. And they're observing what Jesus here is doing. And He's doing something that they would never in a million years do. And their response tells us in verse 30, the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at His disciples, saying, why do you even drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now Matthew was really impressed with Jesus, the religious leaders, not so much. And I think it's ironic that they don't even confront Jesus personally. What do they do? Well, they go to the disciples. They go to the disciples and they say to them, essentially, a question. But it's not really a question. It's a rebuke in the form of a question, isn't it? Why do you even drink with tax collectors and sinners? Like, what business do you have rubbing shoulders with people like that? Disciples, how could you follow a man who does things like that? Who goes into a house full of tax collectors and eats a meal with them? Well, that kind of a question is birthed out of a spiritual snobbery. And that's exactly who these religious leaders were. They were just like the shepherds in Ezekiel 34. 
They were spiritual snobs. They were religious elitists. They were people who separated the population into groups. And, of course, they were in the spiritual elite group. They had a good resume of good works to sort of prove that they were the spiritual elite. And anybody who wasn't quite as elite as they are was in a completely separate group. And they were the people you don't associate with, the sinners. They looked at sinners like Matthew, and they despised them. They despised them. Instead of loving them and seeing them as Jesus did, which was lost sheep in need of a shepherd, they hated them. And all the only thing they could see was, these people don't conform to our religious rules. And it's a really sick position to be in, really. Because where do we get off with the idea, whether you're a Pharisee in Jesus' day or a spiritual snob in our day, expecting sinners to act like spiritual people? I mean, think about that for just a second. Does that make any common sense at all? It doesn't. I'll answer the question. Sinners behave like sinners because they have no power to behave any other way. And if we're waiting for sinners to start behaving like spiritual people before we'll associate with them, we'll end up never associating with them. And that's exactly what the Pharisees had done. They could see no faults in themselves, and they could see no good in anybody that wasn't like them. They looked at these sinners and they thought things like, well, they need to clean up their lives and start working hard at being religious. And if they're lucky enough and they can achieve enough spiritual sort of merit like we have, then we can associate with them and they can be a part of our club. And see, that's sort of the essence of spiritual snobbery. It really is. That we fool ourselves into believing that we are somehow perfect and we snub our nose at people who we perceive to be not. We put people in categories. We judge them by their behavior. We either talk about them condemningly behind their backs or we just avoid them altogether. truth of the matter is some of that attitude of the Pharisees can seep its way into my heart and it can seep its way into yours too. It really can in subtle ways. We begin to think of that when that guy just gets his language cleaned up, I'm going to go talk to him a little bit. When that alcoholic starts putting down the bottle, then maybe he'll be ready to hear about Jesus. When that guy over there starts treating his spouse the way he ought to treat her, then maybe the Lord can do something with him. And it's really just a a root of that same kind of spiritual snobbery. See, the the sad reality of the story of Matthew's conversion is the people who were looked up to as the religious elites were, in fact, the most lost people in the story. The ones who thought they were the most spiritual were, in fact, the ones who were the furthest from Christ. Self-righteousness and spiritual pride will drive a man or a woman straight to hell faster than just about anything else. Satan doesn't care how he gets you to hell, by the way. He'll take a religious route just as quick as he'll take a non-religious route, as long as it leads to the same place. And sin, no matter whether it's a religious version of it or a non-religious version, it leads to the same place. Eternal hell apart from God. The beauty of the story 
is that Jesus is God who came to save sinners. And in this encounter, we see Jesus with a laser focus on the sinners in the group. Not the sinners who were self-righteous, but the sinners who knew that they were sinners and were willing to abandon their sin. And that's who he goes after. To those people, like Matthew, he offers a hand of friendship. To the sinners, like the Pharisees, he has nothing to offer but a dose of reality. Matthew 23, verse 25, he records what Jesus said to these same folks on a different occasion. He said, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you're hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will be clean. You're like whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside you're full of dead men's bones. On the outside you appear to be to people as righteous, but on the inside you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Jesus said, you know what? All your external stuff is just pure. It's just pure garbage. It's a facade that hides a rotten heart. They had believed a lie about themselves that they were righteous and exalted above everybody else. And they had established a whole system of a bunch of do's and don'ts rules and then forced them upon everybody else. Said, if you want to be righteous like us, you just do these things and don't do these things. And it was all a bunch of externals. And Jesus, time and time again, slams that attitude and it slams that bit of theology. And those who propagate it remain outside of the kingdom. You see, at the end of the day, God won't save people who refuse to admit that they're lost. And that's the difference between the Pharisees and Matthew, right? They refuse to admit that they're lost. Their self-righteousness and their spiritual snobbery blinds them to the reality of their own rotten heart. But Matthew? Oh no, not Matthew. He was a sinner. And he knew it. Nobody had to convince him of that. He was just amazed that God would come to someone like him. And when he did, he left everything. You know, the cure for spiritual snobbery really lays in two things. And we all need to make note of this because these roots can can find their way into all of our hearts. The cure for spiritual snobbery begins by a constant remembrance of what it was like to be lost. We need to regularly remind ourselves what it was like when we were lost. if you can remember what it was like when you were lost. If you can't, find somebody who was around you when you were lost and have them remind you. To remember what it's like to be ignorant of the the gospel. To be what it's like to, to live a life where you have no power to combat the sin that rules you and enslaves you. To be complete prey to all of your lusts and the drives of your heart. And no power to stop yourself from giving in. To be constantly having to deal with the consequences of your sin and nothing at your disposal to be able to remedy that. To know that death is on the horizon and one day you're going to die and abjectly afraid of what that means for you. The more we remember what it is to be lost the more compassion we tend to have for sinners. 
And the more it begins to uproot that spiritual snobbery they can find a way into our hearts, the second thing to do is to pay attention to your own sin. It will keep you humble. Pay attention to your own sin. It will keep you humble. Oftentimes we lose sight of our own sin because we like to pay attention to other people's sin. It's easier for me to point out where you sin than it is for me to come to terms with where I sin. The Apostle Paul understood this in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Listen to what he says. Verse 15 and following. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of His great patience and with even the worst of sinners. Then others will realize, too, that they can believe in Him and receive eternal life. You know what's remarkable about what Paul says there? Is that Paul writes this when he's in his 60s. And he's been a believer for like 30 years at this point. Paul... 30 years down the road, after having met Jesus on the road to Damascus, looks at his own self in the mirror, and he doesn't say to the believers and to Timothy, he doesn't say to Timothy, man, you should see what a crappy sinner I was back when I first came to Christ. I'm much better than I used to be. What does he say? He says, Christ came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the worst of them all. It seems like the longer Paul walked with Christ, the more he understood the depth of his sin. There was no track record of spiritual pride where he says, Boy, I used to be like those sinners, but now I'm a pretty good guy. I do lots of good things. I don't do what I used to do. No, Paul was a man who was introspective, and he knew the truth of his own heart. He knew that inside there was rot. And the more he walked with Jesus, the more aware he became of that. And the more aware he became of that, the more he was amazed that God could and would save anybody like him. That's why he says, I'm the worst of sinners. I can't figure out why God would save a a jerk like me. The only thing I can figure, Paul says, is he did it because he needed some example for other sinners to see so that they could have some hope that if God could save that guy, there's hope for me. That's how Paul regards himself. He regards himself as this. I am amazed that Christ would save me. The only thing I can figure is he did it because he needed a really bad example of what an awful sinner could be so that people could look at me and realize that they have some kind of hope in comparison to me. It seems like the more Paul matured in his walk with Christ, the more acutely aware he became of his own sin, and the more he marveled that Christ would save a sinner like And that drove him to go out to other people and say, man, if Christ can save the jerk like me, he can save you too. And Jesus clarifies this whole thing in verse 31 through 32. He says this. Remember the Pharisees go to the disciples and say, what's the deal with this? Hanging out with tax collectors and sinners and people like that. Well, Jesus apparently overhears and he says this. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's a great illustration, isn't it? Isn't that a great illustration? He uses a doctor. 
a doctor and patients as an example of what his mission is. It is probably one of the clearest and most specific illustrations of what God came to do when he was born in human flesh. His mission was first and foremost a ministry to sinners. It's not the healthy who need a physician. That's a great illustration, isn't it? And it was really a rebuke to those who were there. Because they considered themselves spiritual doctors. Spiritual physicians. And Jesus uses their own sort of self-image to sort of castigate them for what they're doing. It's, It's kind of in the form of a question. Shouldn't a doctor who can heal spend time with people who are sick? I mean, what kind of doctors are you? You isolate yourself from the sick. What kind of doctor does that? What kind of medical doctor who has the training to be able to bring healing to people, isolates himself from sick people. Well, that's a stupid thing. We have doctors in the room right now. Wouldn't that be dumb doctors? To go through all that training, to know how to heal, and then to say, nah, uh-uh, I don't want any sick people around me. It's like Jesus was saying to them, are you doctors? Are you doctors who diagnose but have no desire to cure? Are you doctors who like to point out the disease but withhold the cure? What kind of doctor does that? What kind of doctor sees healthy patients? What kind of doctor puts up outside the office door? If you're healthy, come on in. Let's visit. No doctor does that. No, they were spiritual doctors who were very content to diagnose sinners as sinful, but they were quite content to leave them that way. And Jesus says, I'm not that kind of doctor. I came here for sick people. I didn't come here for the healthy. I came here for the sick ones. I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. That's why I'm here. That's why God came in human flesh that he might call sinners. I want to suggest to you a remembrance of that this Christmas needs to happen in our minds and our hearts. As we look out over the world around us and as we look out on the people in our own orbit, we have to ask ourselves the question, what kind of doctor are we? Are we the kind that diagnoses but doesn't bring the cure? Are we content to recognize people as sick but withhold from them what they need to be healthy? I think our attitude toward the lost, sadly, is often one of two things. We regard the lost as enemies who intend to harm us and we need to protect ourselves from them. Or we regard the lost like zombies who have a disease and they intend to infect us and therefore we need to cordon ourselves off so that we're not infected. When Jesus looked over a crowd of lost people, you know what the Bible tells us? And the Gospels on more than one occasion, it says that when Jesus looked over a crowd of sinners, he had compassion on them. You know what he saw? It says he he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd. Does that remind you of Ezekiel 34? I will come and find my sheep. They have no shepherd, so I'll be their shepherd. They're straying and nobody's searching after them, so I will come and I'll find them. 
and I'll go get them and bring them back. That's why Jesus came. That's what drove His mission and His ministry. And there's nothing hard about it. It wasn't hard for Jesus. It wasn't hard for Matthew. And it doesn't need to be that complicated for us. Jesus intentionally went to sinners. He intentionally interacted with them. He intentionally invested the truth in them. And He intentionally called them to new life. And that's our call too. In fact, it's why we exist as a church. To do that very thing. We have around us a whole community full of sheep without a shepherd. And we have a responsibility as under-shepherds for Him to go to them and to call them to the chief shepherd. To tell them that God has come. That He's come in human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and that He has died on a cross and shed His blood for their sins. No matter how dark, no matter how far they are from God, no matter what they've done, no matter how vile, no matter how bad they think they are, Christ has died for them and His death is sufficient to save them. All they have to do is believe that He is who He says He is, that He died in their place, and that His sacrifice is sufficient to cover their sins. And all they have to do is do what Matthew did. Get up and follow Him. Abandon their old life. Abandon their own works. Follow Jesus. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you need to understand Christmas is all about good news. That God has come to you. That He hasn't left you as, as a wandering sheep with no one to come after you. He Himself has come after you. And that He desires that you be saved. He's come to you to forgive you. He's come to you to cleanse you. He's come to you to wipe away the past, whatever your past is, and to give you a fresh start. And He knocks at the door of your heart today, and He says, Hey, you, a sinner, get up from your tax booth, follow after me. I'll make you a new person. I'll forgive you, I'll cleanse you, I'll adopt you into my family. I'll be your Lord and Savior, and I'll give you eternal life. Just follow me. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we, uh, we thank you that you came. We thank you that you didn't leave us as wandering sheep without a shepherd. You didn't leave us in the hands of apathetic religious leaders who couldn't care less about us. But God, we thank you that you came yourself. You came. You lived. You reached out to sinners and you died that we might have eternal life. And I thank you that in this room there is not a single human being that is without hope. There is not a single human being that has sinned too much that you won't forgive. There's not a single human being that's been so bad that you can't wash them clean. If you can forgive Matthew man like that. If you can forgive the Apostle Paul, the chief of sinners, the worst of them all, there's not a one in this room that's outside of your reach. Pray for that man or that woman who's never come to the place in their life where they've looked in the mirror like Matthew did and recognized, you know what, I'm a sinner, I'm a rebel. I've lived my life 
contrary to what God has called me to do. But I've heard the call of Jesus. That He's come. That He's died for me. That He's willing to forgive me if I'll just entrust my life to Him. If you've never done that, then right now is a good time to do it. There's no magic formula. You just confess your sin to the Lord Jesus and say, Christ, like Paul, I'm a pretty rotten person. But you've come for people just like me. So please forgive me. Please wash away my sin. Help me to drop everything and follow you. Because that's the desire of my heart from this day forward. If you do something like that in your own words, the Bible tells us Christ will forgive you. He will cleanse you. He will come and be your Lord and Savior forever. He'll give you eternal life. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you still do that. You do your work among us as we sing. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you're here this morning and you want to talk about what it means to be a Christian, what it means.